Right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, the view from Oceana. We caught up with the newly installed commander of Naval Air Forces Atlantic, Rear Admiral Doug Verissimo, at the recent Naval Air Station Oceana Air Show. We talked about some of his greatest challenges, including maintenance of the U.S. Navy's air fleet, along with the recruitment and retention of sailors and aviators. Stay tuned for a great discussion from the flight line. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. The U.S. Navy's integrated undersea surveillance system is being upgraded and expanded by the Theater Undersea Surveillance Command based at Whidbey Island, Washington State. Reuters reported on September 20th. Intended to monitor the growing Chinese Navy, the IUSS includes undersea cables, acoustic surveillance ships, multiple unmanned craft, so-called underwater satellite sensors, space satellites tracking ships by radio frequency, and the use of AI artificial intelligence software to analyze data. The IUSS is the successor to the more widely known SOSIS system for sound surveillance system made famous during the Cold War. The SOSIS acronym was changed in 1985 but it's still widely recognized. Four U.S. Navy unmanned surface vessels have crossed the Pacific Ocean and are now operating for the first time from Japan. The Ghost Fleet USVs Mariner and Ranger, along with the medium-sized Sea Hunter and Sea Hawk, operated from Pearl Harbor during August's large-scale exercise, then moved to Guam and then Japan for Integrated Battle Problem 23.2 exercises. A Navy official told reporters the unmanned vessels are not being used experimentally, but are being integrated into U.S. 7th Fleet operations. Three South African Navy sailors died September 20th when they were washed overboard from the submarine Mantatisi off the coast of Cape Town. Four other submariners went into the sea, but were rescued after they were hit by waves and wind during a supply transfer from a South African Air Force Lynx helicopter. The U.S. Marine Corps finally has a permanent commandant as of September 22nd. General Eric Smith became the 39th commandant of the Marine Corps after the U.S. Senate was able to confirm him in the post on September 21st, along with confirming General Randy George as the U.S. Army's new chief of staff. The vote to confirm Smith was 96 to nothing, while George's confirmation vote passed 96 to 1. The Senate on September 20th confirmed Air Force General C.Q. Brown as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff by an 83 to 11 vote. Vice Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Lisa Franchetti has yet to be confirmed as Chief of Naval Operations, but it's expected that a vote will take place in the coming days. The votes for the top officers were held individually rather than by normal unanimous consent votes normally held in the Senate. More than 300 other flag and general officers remain unconfirmed with their nominations on hold by Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. A study by the Congressional Research Service concluded in August that it would take more than 90 eight-hour working days to pass the remaining nominations held up by Tuberville. The U.S. Marine Corps F-35B Lightning II Joint Strike Fighter 
crashed September 17th after its pilot ejected from the aircraft near Charleston, South Carolina. The pilot came down safely in a rural area north of Charleston after taking off from nearby Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort, but his aircraft continued flying for about 60 more miles before coming down in a field. The location of the crash was unknown for more than a day until a search found the Lightning's debris on September 18th. The aircraft and pilot were assigned to Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron 501. The Marines called a two-day safety standout after the accident and have not said what caused the pilot to eject. The incident remains under investigation. The British aircraft carrier HMS Prince of Wales arrived at Naval Station Mayport, Florida on September 20th to begin about three months of operations off the U.S. East Coast. A key goal of the deployment is to certify the ship and her crew for F-35B Joint Strike Fighter operations. The providers of Fleet Logistics Support Squadron 30 completed their final flight of the C-2A Greyhound Carrier Onboard Delivery, or COD, aircraft on September 20th, flying the aircraft from Naval Air Station North Island in California to Naval Air Station Norfolk in Virginia. With the Pacific Fleet completing its transition to the CMV-22B Osprey tilt rotor aircraft in the COD role, VRC-30 will be decommissioned in December. The raw hides of VRC-40 will continue operating the C-2A for about another two years before the Atlantic Fleet transitions to the Osprey. In new ship news, the littoral combat ship USS Marinette, LCS-25, was commissioned September 16th at Menominee, Michigan, just across the river of the same name for her namesake city in Wisconsin. The Freedom-class ship enters service as older ships of the same class are being decommissioned, some with less than five years of service. Three more Freedom-class LCSs continue under construction by Lockheed Martin at Fink and Terry Marinette Marine before the production run ends. An Akeel ceremony was held September 20th at English Shipbuilding in Pascagoula, Mississippi, for the future amphibious assault ship Fallujah, LHA-9. The ship's sponsor is Donna Berger, spouse of former Marine Corps Commandant General David Berger. Fallujah is expected to be delivered to the U.S. Navy in late 2029. And in old ship news, a decommissioning ceremony was held September 22nd for cruiser USS Bunker Hill, CG-52, at San Diego. The first Ticonderoga-class cruiser fitted with a vertical launch system, the Hill, was in commission for 37 years. Bunker Hill is the fourth cruiser to be decommissioned in recent weeks. USS San Jacinto, CG-56, held her decommissioning ceremony September 15th at Norfolk. USS Lake Champlain, CG-57, was officially decommissioned and stricken for disposal on September 8th after holding a decom ceremony on September 1st at San Diego. Earlier in August, USS Mobile Bay, CG-53, was decommissioned and stricken at San Diego. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. Okay, we have an unusual opportunity today. We are down in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. We're at Naval Station Oceana. And we are at the Oceana Naval Air Station Air Show. With us today is the Commander of Naval Air Forces Atlantic, Rear Admiral Doug Verissimo, call sign V8. Rear Admiral Verissimo, how you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing wonderful today. It's uh, other than all week we've been moving, 
as a Navy family, which uh, any Navy family out there, anybody who's experienced the uh, movement of your household goods uh, can understand that's a challenge, but I'm getting a well-deserved break on Saturday to come out in this beautiful weather and uh, see what American air power and what the American citizen here in Hampton Roads uh, uh, all coming together. It's a great event. You know, even before we get into naval aviation, which today is all about naval aviation, um, you are the you, you, you just took over uh, from Admiral Meyer as commander of Naval Air Forces Atlantic. But you're a permanent commander. These days, that's almost unusual, but you are the permanent commander, correct? I am the commander, uh, and it is, uh, I'm just coming from Fleet Forces as the Director of Maritime Operations. We all have bosses. When I worked under Admiral Cottle as the Director of Maritime Operations, it was in his command. Now I am the commander of Naval Air Forces Atlantic. I have the same boss, Admiral Cottle, uh, and I work very closely and also as my boss, the Air Boss on the West Coast. So focused on uh, Air Forces going through the Air Boss and focused on the East Coast uh, application of our readiness and warfighting capability goes through Admiral Cottle. So two bosses, but my own command, and I couldn't be happier to have that. So we're here, I mean, obviously, this is a gorgeous day. Uh, it couldn't be, couldn't be a prettier September day down here in Virginia Beach. It's not a cloud in the sky, blue skies everywhere, big crowd, a lot of enthusiasm. The sound of freedom is everywhere. We've already seen air power uh, demonstrations, multiple air. The Blue Angels are coming up later today. Um, I mean, this is really, this is your chance to really show off naval aviation, isn't it? Certainly here in Virginia Beach and across the Hampton Roads area, they know we're here. We see airplanes flying, but we, uh, for the right reasons for security, the, the gates are shut. So you get to see the airplanes making their approach and you get to see the, you know, the sailors are working just as there are sailors working on the Gerald R. Ford right now, 5,000 of them, four deployed. We know they're out there, but we don't see it. This allows us to bring people into the gates in a secure environment and just to spread out. And, and I know this isn't a visual show, but I'm looking over your shoulder at 100,000 people walking on the ramp, uh, enjoying a beautiful fall day and enjoying what they know happens here and seeing a little piece of it. Uh, also having some great uh, air show food and some air show camaraderie. So, I, you know, one of the highlights of this show is going to be the Blue Angels. Um, I gotta tell you, uh, I've done, I've been, I grew up next to Andrews Air Force Base uh, in Maryland. And even as a little kid, you can sit out on my back, back uh, porch leading up into Armed Forces Day, and they would alternate the Blue Angels the Thunderbirds. And I could sit and watch the Blue Angels fly, but they did practicing. They were, I'm, I'm so old, they were flying F-11s. Uh, so the Tiger, which I still think is a really gorgeous airplane, to me that's still the classic Blues uh, aircraft. Um, you were, you, you flew with the Blues um, back in the 90s. I mean, what was that like during, during that time? Yeah, so being a Blue Angel was an incredible honor. We'll wait for that car to go by. Uh, it was an incredible honor, and like you, growing up, my first airplane, not quite the uh, 111, was the F-4, and that just left an imprint on my soul, seeing those airplanes fly, uh, not ever knowing I'd ever get to be a naval aviator, never mind participate in the Blues. What is amazing about the Blue Angels is we all go there for two or three years. If you get that opportunity uh, to represent your professional profession, you do it in two or three years. And then you put back on a green flight suit. It's not the, the team members is, is an indelible mark and memory for me. Those folks I went to 35 air shows with 
three years in a row will always be with me. But when you leave, you're back with the fleet. And before you get there, you were in the fleet. And it's not the individuals that are Blue Angels this year or next year or even back in 99. It's that legacy of the team and that teamwork and representing Naval Aviation. Uh, I probably didn't know that then, but as I've been able to reflect on it, it just really is nice to have been part of that team and that organization and seeing that high-performing group year after year just do their best in a, in a very challenging scenario. It's a lot of hard work, but it pays dividends. Well, that's as, so I, I did this article a couple years ago uh, for Moral Magazine on the Blue Angels. And I have to tell you that in the course of doing that article, I'm, I'm doing several interviews. And of course, I'm talking to other people. That, what are you working on? A story about the Blue Angels. I love the Blue Angels. That is so cool. That is so exciting. There was a universal response. It didn't matter where, what, what context this was happening in. People genuinely get excited when they talk about the Blue Angels. I know during the pandemic, um, they were sending them around the country, and people were just going it really strikes a chord with people that I, I and I've been around my whole life I still find it surprising so what I, and I what I love is the team is the fame it, it's it's the proverbial 1960s rock band that isn't named after the lead singer does anybody know somebody specifically who's a Blue Angel this year? I'm sure their family members do. I'm sure their friends do. The Blue Angels is a monolithic Americana, a slice of America that uh, we get to see and take part of and enjoy what American professionalism can do. So uh, I, I, when, when people say they love the Blue Angels, that's the important part. It's not, I love this person that's on the Blue Angels. It's not a, it, uh, if you want to join the military, if you want to be part of an organization that works to be bigger than themselves, I think they represent what the team of professionals and a squadron on a ship, uh, in, a, in a department, in a reactor, can really add to the team total team effort. Uh, so if you want to be part of that, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm enamored by the profession I've been able to have. And I just want to encourage other people to pursue or think about, uh, talk to us, see what, uh, see what you might like to do here in the, in the military. There's there some opportunity. Go. Well, there you go. So, I mean, the, the Blue Angels were created as a recruiting tool. Absolutely. Post-World War II era, everybody's getting out of the military. People in the military know I still need people coming in. I still need to grow aviators for the future. So the, the Navy flight demonstration team was created. Created. And this, I mean, you know, the, the bottom line of all this is recruiting. You're looking for those young people who are not doing it today, who are not in college yet today, but are still growing up. You want to spark them. You want to get this. Well, I mean, I, I just ask you, you're not supposed to ask the interviewer, but you're, you're involved in uh, the reporting of DOD. There was something about seeing and your, your youth. I'm just, I'm asking you, was there, what got you to want to see and talk to and think about this line, line of work? There's, it is for the greater good. We don't always get it perfect. It's a profession just like any other profession, but I think we're missing the blessing of an all-volunteer force, and that means we have to really pursue those young men and women and inspire them to pursue careers and give it a shot. And uh, I don't think you're going to find many folks who've done their initial commitment and chose another path that don't look back on their time in service as a positive, as a life shaper. Uh, so uh, 
Yeah, that's uh, as a blue, as the commander of Naval Air Forces Atlantic, I want to inspire those folks that are in the cockpit, that are working on jets, that are out on the GW that you were on yesterday, working real hard to get ready for the next deployments. This this job goes on, and it's hard work, but it's for a purpose and a meaning. So where are you in, recruit, in, in recruiting and retention right now? So retention is, is relatively okay. Uh, historically, we're kind of riding uh, kind of the typical boundaries. We're seeing a less a lessening of interest uh, with young folks wanting to pursue uniform services. And I would say the police forces, fire departments, and DOD are seeing similar trends. How we arrest those trends, um, certainly uh, I, I don't think folks want to be forced to serve the military. We want people who are inspired to join and represent their nation. So that's that's of my many focuses in my job. That's one of my focuses. I think recruiting, uh, making sure the parents trust us, making sure the uh, younger people are inspired uh, to get the education, get the training. Uh, if, if you're young and you want to work with your hands and work in, a, in, a, in an industry, we're a great place to do that. And technology. There, it, it's, there's the gamut from running a naval reactor to running a catapult on the roof to fixing a jet to fixing the radar on the on the on uh, all the layers of the aircraft carrier uh, to being a chef. You want to be a chef later in life? Come join us and help us serve meals uh, to sailors. And, and you're going to have uh, training and credentials when you leave. So your, your predecessor, Edward um, during his time here, he's they, they set up a new maintenance operation here on the here at, uh, over in Norfolk, actually Norfolk Naval Air Station. Um, how, how, how what what is the state of maintenance right now? Is your backlog still horrible? Is it getting better, or where where are you? So with the the, uh, the maintenance operation center, the mock aviation that is open uh, in Norfolk started with the F eighteen. F-18s are really healthy right now. Uh, we are working to improve full operational capability. It's, it's We're expanding our focus of where we started. We initially built the readiness to where we needed it. We are surpassing that in Super Hornets right now. So now we're taking a little bit more of a scalpel. We can't rest. This isn't a destination. Other aircraft have now been inducted into the merits, uh, the maintenance operations center. And, uh, you know, without going down the list, as they get inducted, we're seeing very similar results as we saw with the Super Hornet. So at first, we're improving just general readiness and the maintenance and the operational capability. And now we're really looking at the more specific degraders or uh, where we might want to focus readiness and get supply to focus or the maintenance uh, the maintainers to focus their training and their capability to continue to improve readiness. So we're ready because the world is changing. So the Maritime Operations Center that was started by Airbus and Admiral Meyer has really got traction. My job is to make sure it keeps accelerating in a positive direction. We don't start spinning our, our, our wheels in the mud. Uh, that we don't stall and go backwards. So that's uh, that's really going to be my focus on that readiness development uh, for the warfighters out there on the leading edge. So we still got a couple of aircraft, at least two, among others, uh, to integrate in the Atlantic fleet. One is the Osprey, which is now operating out of the Pacific as the COD aircraft, carry on board delivery. That is in the poverty in the process of replacing uh, the venerable, never old, seems C2 Air um, Greyhound. It's just a, a, a truck. I flew on one again yesterday. 
uh, rattling along, but those are, those are sundowning. They'll be gone in a couple of years. So you're going to have to start transitioning into Osprey. Um, you've also got the, the uh, F-35, 35 Charlies, the, the carrier launch variant is coming into service. At the moment, it's been deployed on West Coast aircraft carriers. Uh, but you're going to have to make provision for that out here. Can you just talk, I mean, what's involved in bringing those aircraft online out here? So for both of those aircrafts, less so with the Osprey, but there are some uh, adjustments to the aircraft carrier and the AIMD, the Aircraft Intermediate Maintenance Department on the ship. So we have to prepare the aircraft carriers for the aircraft. Uh, with the, the geopolitical tensions the way they are, it makes sense to have started in the Pacific. Uh, we are now, as aircraft carriers are going through our maintenance protocols, adjusting those ships so they're ready for those new aircraft. You were just on GW. It's a packed ship. It just went through its refueling, uh, uh, RCOH refueling carrier overhaul. It is ready for Joint Strike Fighters and MV-22s. Or, uh, uh, so we are we are making those changes right now. So as the ships go through updates, uh, they will get uh, the necessary gear and supply issuance to be able to carry those aircraft. So for the main for the maintenance operations, spare parts, mechanics, all that, you're still going to have to stand up some operations here at, at Ocean for Maritime Operations Center, aren't you? Absolutely, and, and Joint Strike Fighters are being inducted into the uh, Maintenance Operations Center. Uh, it's an interesting uh, platform because it falls under the Joint Program Office, JPO. It's a joint aircraft, but we have our own unique uh, challenges as a Navy in how we fly and maintain aircraft. Uh, we we don't have a uh, an 18-wheeler that can drive down the road and, and deliver our parts, so we are definitely focusing on inducting those newer platforms into this system that keeps us both ready at sea and then ready ashore to feed to sea as required. So what, and before we go, I really am curious, what is your interaction with bringing the carriers online? So carriers go offline, they come back, and obviously Gary's Truman is up for over a year at the moment, dry docking availability. Um, you're going to, the, the Ford has finally deployed, coming home fairly soon. You're going to deploy Eisenhower here on a regular deployment. Um, and GW, George Washington, just came out of the longest reactor uh, uh, overhaul ever. But they're going to Japan. Um, but you've also got another carrier, John F. Kennedy, coming out. Um, so, and that's another generation of aircraft carrier, another new new systems, um, and that's going to operate F-35 from the start. Um, what what is your role? I mean, people think of you as aircraft, but your aircraft carriers, Absolutely. the platforms. What is your role with the carriers? How does that work? So my role with the carriers is man, train, and equip. So it is the aircraft carriers that are in shorter maintenance periods and the aircraft carriers that are going through their training phases to get ready for integrated phase, to get ready for advanced phase. When the aircraft carriers are doing their workups, they get handed over to a a numbered fleet commander. But I make sure that they are manned, trained, and equipped for that transition. Where I tie into new construction or RCOH is I am the voice of the customer. So, um, you know, the COVID definitely had some impacts on our ability and our supply chains across the nation. That's no different than in, in, in rebuilding a huge pump that's installed on an aircraft carrier. COVID should provide us some lessons. In a time of crisis and things get scarce, we don't want to be competing for scarcity. So we should not only say 
COVID caused us some problems, but we have to learn from those problems. So I'm the voice of the customer that will push uh, the, the naval ships, the construction arm, and the private yard, Huntington Ingalls, to keep get us the equipment on time, uh, as expected, and ready to get into the fight as soon as possible. Once that's handed over to me, that's solely my responsibility to get that ship in the fight and ready to go. But uh, I'm often in conversations to keep things on time as best as possible. It's a challenging environment, but we're up to the task, and we're making improvements. Okay, well, Admiral, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's a busy time. Everybody wants to talk to you. It's a gorgeous day. Once again, folks, we're down here at Naval Lister Air Station Oceana at the Oceana Air, Air Show, <laughs> talking to the commander of Naval Air Forces Atlantic, Admiral Doug Verissimo, V8. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And Mr. Cavus talks about a lesson in living history. Well, this past week, I spent two days attending the McMullen Naval History Symposium at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. The annual event, the world's largest naval history conference, is a chance to hear more about an amazingly wide variety of topics presented by historians from around the globe. A sampling of the 60 individual panels, each with three or four presentations on different topics, ranges from the American Civil War to prisoners of war in the age of sail to understanding the Cold War Soviet Navy to studies of the treatment of women in the military from the 1940s to the 70s. Studies from studies about public perceptions of the British Royal Navy during the First World War, when a naval establishment with a deep-rooted fear of any kind of engagement with the press resulted in a general public unawareness of the war at sea and a lack of support in Parliament, where the Navy became known as the silent service. There were studies about U.S. Marine Corps expeditionary efforts in the 19th and 20th centuries prior to World War II. Reports on the, the defense industry's effect on national economies ranging in, from the mid-19th century to today. There was a panel on how American sea power led to the defeat of Japan in World War II. It is sometimes sobering for me to listen to papers about events I've covered in the media from the post-Cold War drawdown to the use of aircraft carriers and humanitarian and disaster relief operations in the 90s and 2000s, to the perennial rise and fall of U.S. Navy force design, to the U.S. Navy's efforts to garner support in Congress for shipbuilding, both in the last century and the current one. I'm not a historian, but in many of those areas, I wrote and reported on what's often called history's first draft, the news. Throughout those two days, I and many others Look for parallels and lessons in the past to current events. This is really the heart of why the study of history is important. Rarely, if ever, do people face any situation that is entirely new. The names may change, the dates, the numbers, and particular details, but the stories and situations are virtually never new. A great example is the current rise of the Chinese Navy, seen as a direct challenge to the post-World War II dominance of the American Navy. A similar case took place in the early 20th century, when Germany, in an effort to place itself as a preeminent world power alongside the United Kingdom, rapidly built up a very large and expensive fleet of powerful warships. The British reacted with alarm, and in turn, rapidly expanded their own fleet at great cost. Japan, after World War I, also built up its battle fleet, with an eye to defeating the American and British navies in the Pacific. Those efforts the arms races and their results, 
hold many lessons for today, including the overall question of, was it worth it? Did expending all that national treasure accomplish its goals? Or was it a double-edged sword? Good questions and worthy of continued discussion and analysis. All professionals need to be aware not only of contemporary events and developments, but also the history of the world in which they live. It's all too easy to get wrapped up in the events of the day-to-day and lose sight of where it's all going or could go. As we noted last week in our discussion with Jerry Hendricks, the wrecking of seven U.S. destroyers in 1923 due to navigational and command decision errors resonates directly with the U.S. Navy working hard today to rekindle those skills following the fatal collisions of 2017. The Naval Academy History Department's annual symposium deserves the support of the highest levels of Navy leadership, the offices of the Secretary of the Navy and the Chief of Naval Operations. I know that another major event, the International Sea Power Symposium, also took place this week at the Naval War College in Rhode Island. But it was disappointing that this year, no high-level officials or active-duty senior flag officers were present in Annapolis to emphasize their support of the symposium. To paraphrase several philosophers and thinkers, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. The key to understanding events of today will always be in the study of events past. Thanks, Chris. That's an important reminder. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishes Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. <laughs>